Hi there, and welcome into the first episode of Broad Reach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm Communications Manager at Yachting New Zealand. And we'll look to interview a range of people within the sport, from top sailors of today and yesteryear, through to coaches and officials, and people involved in the sailing and boating industries. We really hope it's informative, entertaining and educational, simply just as a way for people to feel connected to the sport. Now, this is the first episode and there are bound to be some teething and technical problems along the way. So please bear with us. But it'd be great to get your feedback or suggestions. And you can email me on michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. We'll also look to introduce some regular features along the way, including a section called Worst Wipeout Ever. You can email stories of your worst wipeouts through to michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz and the best ones will be shared on the podcast. Well, today we kick off with an interview with two of the world's best sailors. I hope you enjoy. Well, joining us now is uh, Peter Burling and Blair Chook. And although the pair of them don't really need much of an introduction, just as a recap, the Olympic gold and silver medalists, six times 49er world champions, uh, America's Cup winners, and former World Sailors of the Year. But I'm guessing uh, the pair of them, who uh, don't generally sit still for long, um, might be struggling a little bit with isolation. How are you coping at the moment, Blair, with isolation? Yeah, it's certainly a little bit different than what we've been used to, but um, you know, adapting relatively well. And um, I'm pretty fortunate. I'm at home in Kirikiri, so um, yeah, would have never thought to have this much time at home um, this year, especially. Um, you know, would have been in Europe right about now, uh, racing the 49er. But yeah, things have changed quickly, and just got to adapt and um, make the best of it, really. But um, yeah, strange old times. What about you, Pete? Is uh, this the longest break you've had off the water for some time? Yeah, it's definitely been a pretty interesting period, and uh, it's something that you know it's actually probably not not the worst thing in the world to you know have a few weeks off. You know, Blair and myself um, definitely run a pretty busy schedule, so it's you know quite nice to be able to sit back and reflect, and um, you know try and make some good decisions about you know what you want to do in the future, but. And also, um, you know, recharge the batteries for hopefully out the, the back end. So, Pete, you um, posted on Instagram last week um, that this isolation sort of um, sparked some memories for you of being in your Brunel bubble. Uh, two years ago, you were heading around Cape Horn at about this time, I think. What are sort of, I guess, the similarities uh, in the present situation to what you faced being uh, on a boat racing around the world? Yeah, well, I think... Uh, you know, it was obviously pretty funny how the, the timing worked out, but, you know, it was incredibly similar timing to, you know, when we went into isolation to um, when we actually set off on uh, leg seven of the World Ocean Race two years ago, which is, for those that don't know, the, the, in that edition of the race was the leg from Auckland uh, around Cape Horn up into Edigee. And you know, it's definitely something that, you know, on those boats you're effectively... Uh, uh, very isolated. Um, you know, in that league, you go past the uh, uh, <clears throat> most isolated point on the on the globe, which is you know, Point Nemo in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the furthest point from land. Um, and definitely, a lot of the a few people have probably said to me at the beginning of isolation that you know this must be um, quite similar to what it's like in in the, the Volvo Ocean Race. But 
you know, I think the in a lot of ways it's uh, very similar. You know, the the same kind of things apply that you know you have to obviously look after yourself and your your friends and other people that are that are around and you know you are obviously you know completely isolated and have to do a lot of planning. Um, I was fortunate enough our boat captain did a, a fair bit of it. Um, but around food and the likes, you know, you're taking everything you need for that that whole um, journey. But you know, I think the obviously big difference is that the finish line is a lot clearer in the ocean race. You know, you've pretty much set out with you know one mission for that that period of time. But you know, the finish line is obviously a fixed distance away. So you know, once you get to that, then you um you know kind of exactly what's going to happen afterwards. But you know, that's definitely the difference at this time. You you obviously have to remain very very diligent to to try and knock this out, so you know the finish line can come quicker. Well, I guess that's what I'd I'd like to talk to you about uh, today. The Volvo Ocean Race. You know, there's so much uh, uncertainty with your other sailing right now, namely the the America's Cup and and the Olympics. But uh, it'd be a useful exercise and and really interesting, I'm sure, just to sort of cast our, our minds back to the Volvo Ocean Race of uh, 2018 um and, and just i guess maybe just as a scene setter what do you both think of what's the first thing that that you th- that comes to mind when you think back to that race blair i think probably the first thing that comes to mind thinking about the volvo would be just the adventure really um you know not many things in sport or in life for that matter um have such a combination between like um, a competition and still that adventure sort of exploring aspect to it. So that was something I loved about the race was that you, you know, you racing against the best sailors in the world, um, really tight racing, um, still doing you know sailing skills and trying to figure out how to make a boat go faster than someone else. But on top of all of that, you you're doing this adventure. You get to sail right around the world and you're going to places or parts of the ocean that no one has ever been before and you know, so I think that part of it for me was, um, you know, really special. And that's, you know, if you take away all of what happened at the end of the race, and um, that that's what, you know, I look back on now as being the, the fondest memories of the race. And Pete? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, obviously just an amazing experience. That, you know, it, to me, with how we travel and how easy travel has become, with the likes of aeroplanes, um, you know, to get us around the world to, I suppose, do something in a very competitive nature that's very similar to the the other yachting we do, but it also have that adventure aspect and, you know, learn some incredible new skills and, you know, make some really good friends along the way and um, to actually have travelled around the globe via um, the oceans then um, via the air is, you know, something that's, you know, pretty cool for, I suppose, to, to have done. So Blair, I just probably take you back a little bit. You talked about dreaming of the ocean race uh, before even um, competing at things like the Olympics and the America's Cup. And um, I read somewhere that you cited a book, uh, Rob Mundell's book on the 2001-2002 race. What was it about that book that sparked something in you? Yeah, I um, got this book um, called Ocean Warriors. And I'm not sure how I came across it. I think maybe my mum brought it for me or something, but it was uh, the story of the 0102 Volvo Ocean Race, and in particular, it was uh, following a, a boat team, News Corp. Um, 
And the funny thing is now, which I didn't know at the time, but the book was sort of centered on that boat and the skipper of that boat was Jez Fanstone, who um, has a, a heck of a lot to do with both Pete and I um, and our, our whole careers, really. He uh, coached us to the silver medal in London. He was the manager of the New Zealand sailing team in both London and Rio Olympics. So, yeah, a really key part of of um, where we've got to today. And, yeah, he was all right throughout that book, and I didn't I didn't even put it together till I met him in uh, 2008. So that's pretty classic. But I think what stood out to me in that book was just, you know, I, I, what sort of just ignited my imagination, I guess, and hearing stories of sailing in the Southern Ocean and um, the camaraderie between teammates and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it really got my imagination going. And during that same time, I'd um, been doing some sailing uh, on our family yacht. We uh, had a family yacht growing up, and I'd been lucky enough to do some blue water sailing up to Fiji um, right around the same time. So between that and that book that sort of set my dream of doing the Volvo Ocean Race I guess. And so Peter what about your background in ocean sailing? Uh, well I hadn't done a whole heap of ocean sailing um, I'd probably done one uh, Sydney to Hobart and you know one Auckland to Fiji race a few coastal races along the way but kind of always I think seen ocean racing as the I suppose the third um you know, aspect of our sport being that the Olympics to me is kind of the, the pinnacle of, um, you know, dinghy racing um, and kind of the pinnacle of probably the racing you do as you grow up. And then the America's Cup's very much, you know, uh, a lot, um, I suppose, more overarching in terms of the connection to technology and the fact that it's a match race and the amount of people in the team. And then the ocean races. You know, even without the racing side, just has so much of an adventure aspect to it that you know there's there's a lot of different ocean races out there, but uh, they're all kind of very similar in the the fact that they have such an adventure aspect, um, you know, thrown in with with the the normal sporting aspect of sailing. So uh, it's always something I kind of really wanted to to try and get the opportunity to do, and um, I didn't quite take the opportunity as. Uh, quite as early as Blair, but yeah, I managed to find a really good opportunity with um, Brunel to to get heavily involved in that campaign. And um, yeah, it was a, definitely a massive learning experience about the other side of um, our sport um, and something that definitely got no regrets doing. So Matt Frey approached you to, to come and join their team. Uh, did it take long for you to say yes? Yeah, so... Javi asked me to, to join them for the race, I think, uh, while we're in Bermuda uh, in the build-up to the America's Cup. Pete and I had had a, a pretty good relationship with both Ikea and Javi through the 49er. They had um, you know, a bit of legends in the class, the gold and silver, silver medalists, and they were sort of just finishing their time in the 49er um, when we sort of started up, but we had this crossover over the sort of London Olympic period. Uh, so we sort of kept in touch with them through the years, and then I think in the uh, 2015 edition of the race, uh, when Matt Free was in town, I did some sailing with them, and I actually did the leg start and jumped off the boat. And um, before we headed out of the Gulf, and at that time, I sort of joked to the to the guys on board that you know maybe next time I'll, I'll stay on, and you know that's ended up what, what what happened. But yeah, um, Shabby sort of came and spoke to me and and put the opportunity in front of me, and at that stage, I obviously talked to Pete. Firstly, and, and said, 
um, the opportunity that I had and then, you know, the, the tight team around us and, you know, everyone sort of knew that I'd always wanted to do the race and it was a great opportunity um, to join the team. And, um, yeah, so I, at that stage, um, you know, said yes and, um, and then we went on to, you know, obviously concentrating on the job at hand, which was the America's Cup at that time. What about you, um, Pete? Um, was it on your radar at that stage? Yeah, it was, I think it was something that, you know, I'd always been pretty keen to, to try and take on an ocean race at some stage as well. And But probably more on the timing, was quite keen to see how the America's Cup um, played out and to get back to New Zealand and have a little bit of time off because uh, it would have been a pretty big push from the, the Olympics to the Cup. Um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do over the next couple of years. So no more, um, went back to New Zealand, had a couple of days off and amongst a few parades and other bits and yeah, then decided that I would probably get bored pretty soon and kind of reached out to a, a couple of the teams, um, you know, just seeing how the, their teams and were shaping up and yeah, ended up taking uh, an opportunity with um, Brunel, which was, you know, a really cool opportunity to, you know, be one of the, the watch captains and kind of sit opposite um, Bowie in the watch and be quite responsible for a lot of what was going on and that was a you know, absolutely amazing learning experience as well so yeah, I think it you know, really set me up in good shape for you know, any ocean racing I wanted to do in the future. So a lot was made um, you know, when it was announced that the pair of you had been doing it that you'd be racing each other and for so long, you know, best part of a decade you'd been uh, the Pete and Blair show so what was it like Blair for you to be actually on opposite teams for a change? Yeah, I think it was made more of a deal within the media and probably sailing circles rather than what we sort of um, or how we looked at it. Uh, obviously, it was a little bit different. Um, I think that probably um, for us or, or definitely for me was more the case towards the end of the race where when it, you know, especially the last leg or so when it was, you know, we were essentially going against each other and Dong Fong to... Um, try and win the race and normally you sort of look across and you'd have you know Pete next year to take on those people or Pete would you know have me and would sort of you know but you're looking across at your mate you know thinking yeah we're going to beat these guys to to win it you know so that was definitely different at the end of the race but I think we from the outset saw it as a, a learning opportunity both of us and um, you know just want to do the best for our teams and, and try and learn the most we could as as people and sailors to be better for the experience. So I think, you know, looking back now, that's definitely how we, um, how, how, how that opportunity and the experience of doing the race sort of played out. In essence, uh, I guess, Pete, you know, there were times when you guys were in sight of each other for so long. Uh, you know, you look at some of the races, I think leg eight was 61 seconds, the margin, and then into Gothenburg, you guys beat Matt Free by less than two minutes. You know, how? what impact did that have to have boats so close to you all the time? Yeah, well, I think um, kind of touching on what Blair said there, you know, there's obviously seven people, seven um, teams in the in the race and, you know, so often in nearly all the legs you'd have one within your your AOS range and, you know, unless you'd had a, a really good leg or a really bad leg, you know, pretty much the, the whole way and, you know, that was just kind of the, probably one of the things that made it, you know, really fun and, but obviously, you know, incredibly intense is that you can pretty much tell you know, every six hours or 
you know, whether you gained or lost, or yeah, even on a shorter shorter time period than that. If you had someone you know tracked on AIS, then you could you know pretty much tell live you know whether you tracked or lost, and you know trying to get that you know nth degree out of the out of the boat. And in terms of performance, you know, it was definitely um, you know something that you had to get very good at you know switching on and off and you know really trusting your teammates and you know knowing when you had to you know put in a massive effort or you know, when you could just back off and rest and you know things would be alright and that was definitely uh you know a pretty cool race on the whole for that. Yeah, you know, everywhere in the world you went you were having, you know, close close engagements with other boats and you know, I can remember a few crosses in the Southern Ocean where you're you know thousands of miles from anywhere and you're pretty much having to decide whether you're gonna cross or go behind someone and you know, plenty of breeze in the in the dark in the middle of the Southern Ocean and yeah, you know, they're definitely um, you know situations that if you were sailing around the cans would seem pretty normal, but yeah, it definitely seem pretty foreign. You know, when you're that far from from land and you've been racing for that long. So, were the times Blair when you could actually call out to other teams, and was there a bit of banter on boats in, in those moments? Yeah, there's certainly um, you know times like that. I think the ones in the Southern Ocean, um, like Pete mentioned, are, are pretty surreal and. Um, there were some good ones at the start of the Southern Ocean League from here to Cape Horn where we were all pretty close. And I think that's the one Pete was talking about. They had a real close one with, I think, Dong Fong. And we were close to someone else at that stage. And there was like five of us jibing back and forth. So that was pretty um, pretty crazy. And then we had the close jibing battles with Dong Fong in the Southern, uh, Southern Ocean League before that. Um, but those ones you can't really – the boats, you're going pretty fast and – um, you know, you don't really yell out, but certainly in the doldrums, I think we had um, one, Pete, when we're coming back down to Auckland, we were pretty close to you guys and had a bit of banter, like a boat length apart or something going about 0.1 of a knot. So in those situations, you can yell out to someone. They kept, they kept on trying to roll over top of us or something. We're trying to tell them where New Zealand was, go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it works. Um, yeah. Pete, um, Bauer Becking said in one interview that they had to rein you in a little bit because you're often sailing on what he called the red line. I mean, how hard was it for you, to, I guess, to find that balance or to dial things back? Because I'm guessing, you know, put you on an America's Cup boat or a 49er, you're trying to find that nth degree of speed all of the time. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, in all uh, aspects of sailing, you do have to dial it back a bit at times, and you know it's one of our main roles in the the cup um, boats. Also, for you know Blair and myself, is to make sure we're trying to making sure we're keeping the boat in one piece, and you know monitoring all everything that's going on to you know push it as hard as we can, but also you know keep within the bounds of what it's designed to do. And you know that's something that you know I think if you look at the the ocean race, definitely you know at the beginning of the race we. We definitely weren't pushing the boat hard enough on Brunel, um, and if you compare kind of what we're comfortable doing at the the end of the race to what we were comfortable doing at the beginning of the race, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a massive uh, difference between that. So, you know, it was something that you know, obviously I was always um, more on the the pushing side than than the the backing it off side, and you know, Bowie was probably slightly more on the conservative side than I was, but you know. It, it's also something that everything carries a little bit of risk as well. You know, whether you're 
trying to put a reef in before a squall and you know there's a, there's always risk in you know actually putting a reef in and out or you know furling a sail leaving it flapping for four or five minutes while you, you furl it and you know big breeze you know puts damage on gear as well so you know for everything there is obviously uh you know you have to trade off you know exactly what the the benefits are um you know first the first the risk and you know it's um pretty incredible how that those um I suppose trade-offs changed uh, during the, the period of the race. And I guess those risks were probably brought home when news of um, John Fisher was lost at sea on the leg between uh, Auckland and Brazil. Blair, what impact did that have on you and those on map frame? Yeah, that morning we got the news come through that um, Fisher had been lost overboard was certainly the toughest um, toughest of the whole race, you know, that. The conditions we were in at that stage were um, probably, I'd say, the the toughest that we faced in the whole race. I mean, that Southern Ocean League in general was really windy and um, big waves, but in, in in particular, that morning was pretty gnarly. Um, personally, I'd just woken up to, um, to we were about to do a jibe, um, and I heard heard the news at that stage that he'd been lost overboard and. Um, we didn't know that they hadn't found him at that stage, but you you turn around at that that point, and look behind the boat, and it's massive waves, and you sort of know getting back in those conditions is next to impossible, you know. So um, yeah, really somber mood on board our boat. Um, I think something for us that we were quite lucky with to help get us through is that we had issues of our own going on with the mast track and. Uh, sort of damage to the, the mast and the sail um, even then so that sort of we were kind of concentrating on making sure we were getting out of it um, in one piece as well so that helped us to get through but that was all you could really do was to you know to concentrate on yourselves and make sure your teammates are looked after and, and look after the boat and get out of there really but um, yeah really really somber um, somber morning and, and I guess just hit um, home just how real real it is and I think it was pretty challenging for everyone on shore at that stage as well. So with the times, Pete, when you felt scared or vulnerable out in the race? Yeah, well, I think everything's relative. Um, you know, there obviously is a fair bit of risk and, you know, that that was probably, you know, like Blair said, the, the time that you know, everything hits home the most is, you know, when something has actually happened to a, you know, a, one of the teammates uh, during the race and, you know, really makes, uh, I suppose, puts everything into perspective that, you know, that something, you know, there's obviously the risk that everyone talks about the whole time, but, you know, to have the, the worst happen, there's, you know, really, um, you know, sad and the mood upon our boat was, you know, definitely very sombre for, you know, a couple of days post that and, um you know, like Blair said, you know, eventually you kind of got to the stage where, you know, the best thing to do was to keep pushing on because then you'd, you know, get out of the cold and, you know, get around Cape Horn and, you know, have something, um, you know, a milestone ticked off and, you know, something to to be happy about again. So, it, um, yeah, it was definitely a pretty interesting league. I think, you know, a lot of the teams had issues. Um, you know, we ended up breaking a tiller on a rudder at one stage and, you know, probably 50 miles out from the horn and, you know, sitting on our side, 
half um yeah you know, broached out for for a wee while while we're trying to figure out how to get that thing under control and you know having we had a little electrical fire downstairs when some some water got into our media box at one stage and you know there's just it's definitely seemed like a, a league where you're constantly um fighting battles um yeah we ripped our j2 even you know pretty early on in the league so you know we had repaired that and we're trying to get it to hold in one piece and you know and, um, i think we repaired it three or four times during the league so you know, not quite as major as the the damage um player had with you know ripping the main in half but you know i think everyone had some a pretty interesting leg typically what was the hardest thing about the race is it mental is it physical uh i think it's different for um everyone but yeah i think the the mental side of it and just um finding the limit of how hard you can push how much sleep you need um yeah the physical aspect of it's hard i mean moving the sails around the boat uh moving the stack down below grinding to do sail changes it's all it's all difficult but it's it's just the add up of doing that just day in day out um in some pretty challenging conditions both hot and and really cold you know so i think that side of it is just finding the limit of how hard you can push probably that yeah the, the more the mental side is is what um i really learned a lot about myself i think and that's certainly what you see the people that are have done the race a few more times they sort of know that like pete mentioned earlier know when you're going to push hard and when you need to and when you can try and bank some sleep and stuff like that so were there ever pete any times that you'd have a downtime you know what would you do to pass the time <laughs> if you had downtime you'd generally be asleep um yeah, you know, it's definitely something that you know it's quite hard probably from looking at the outside in but you know i can you only probably can remember like one or two off watches where you were um rested enough you kind of couldn't really get to sleep um and they were generally you know in the doldrums where it was incredibly hot as well and you'd end up just kind of hanging out uh, in some shade up on the bow somewhere but yeah for 90 percent of the legs there's so many times where you know that you know if you're more rested the crew's probably more willing to wake you up to you know get a, give them a hand with something when you know you actually need more people to make something happen faster and you know um definitely on our boat we made a massive effort to try and make sure we were resting people and we're kind of down to more like three people on deck for you know times that were easy and you know trying to have more people asleep because uh it was actually the the cool thing about the Volvo 65 was you were the most riding moment when you were in the bunk so as soon as you were out of the bunk you were actually unless you were doing something to be um help the boat go faster you were kind of making the boat go slower so and then also to, you know, make sure as soon as something was going on and, you know, if you were going to be quicker to do that manoeuvre or, you know, that furl or whatever, um, you know, with more people on deck, then you'd get more people up. So amazingly, uh, it all came down to the final leg when Matt Frebrunel, Dong Fong were all basically level on points heading into that final leg. Blair, what was that like for, you know, you'd raced all the way around the world and you had a short sprint to the finish line but it all came down to that last leg. What was that like? Yeah, it was a, um, you know, quite a cool emotions, I'd say, before we left, um, knowing that you sort of got this this sprint 
um, you know, still a relatively long way, but um, in comparison to where we just come from a sprint, um, you're also, you know, I mean, you some of the other legs you're going through the Southern Ocean and stuff, so you know you're, you know, you're preparing for some pretty challenging times, but that league you know you're preparing for basically three days of not sleeping. Um, so you're sort of a little bit uh, anxious of that a little bit, but uh, yeah, I think once we got into it, it was just, or well, certainly on, on our boat, it was a, quite a different mindset than the rest of the time. It was just pushing the whole time, and um, you know that some people rested, but for you know for the most part, there was such a big push. We we're having a super close battle with Dong Fong for probably two thirds of the race. Um, so until we split, basically, so that sort of helped us to keep pushing. Um, but yeah, the the decision which ultimately cost us the race was um, something that sort of comes back on, you know, plays in your mind a lot and how we could have done it differently. But, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it was a 50-50 call as to which way you want to go around the TSS and we decided to go one way and those other guys went the other way and they were right. So um, you kind of have to live with it. What about for you on board Brunel, Pete? You know, Dong Fong took the inside route and you, you guys went the outside. Uh, did you think they'd taken a risk? Yeah, well, uh, we didn't actually start the leg in the best shape, so we were kind of, you know, had a really bad, um, I suppose, part from the, the run down from Norway to um, Denmark, and so we were a little bit behind. But yeah, you know, we kind of took a bit of a risk before that to, you know, set up quite high and probably made our decision. Um, yeah, almost or a lot before Blair's uh, what they did on Maffrey and um, Dong Feng. Yeah, seemed pretty committed to go low the whole time um, to actually manage to sneak in front of Blair um, on Maffrey for you know a lot of that reach down the end, and then you know we kept kind of committing out to sea um, while Maffrey went a bit more down the middle. Um, yeah, once we were past the TSS, hoping the shift would come through, which uh, never really came, and yeah, you know, so that's probably why we ended up third but that's no, definitely something that you know I think it was always going to be a bit of a flip of the coin in that that last leg um, uh, so if you couldn't you know split the boats from you know the amount of sailing they'd done over the last whatever it was eight months it was always going to end up being uh you know decided by something that you know you're probably going to have some regrets as to not making a, a different decision and you know I think for us, I probably look more back at the beginning of the race, looking at how many easy points we'd let slide, um, go on the first couple of legs that you know, could have so easily um, gone the other way. And you know, we had a on Brunel a very good second half of the race and didn't let too many points slide that that shouldn't have. But you know, definitely, um, you know, kind of probably look back regretting that we didn't uh, manage to get some slightly better results uh, early on. So, Blair, how did you cope with not winning? You know, you basically won everything you touched for a number of years. Uh, you know, second, terrific result, but especially as you've been leading for so long, was it a difficult thing to swallow? Yeah, it was pretty difficult. And I think, um, you know, mine and Pete's, um, you know, sort of how we approached that last league had been different. And like Pete mentioned, they'd done amazing to come back in the second half of the race so they were really the you know the outsiders t to win and they sort of thoroughly deserved if they could have done it but you know for us we'd led for a big portion of the race and um 
you know, we had some two bad legs for us with the double point legs, um, first Southern Ocean and then the Atlantic, which really cost us ultimately. Um, but we started sailing well at the end again. And, um, you know, I think the, the disappointment for me was, you know, a lot of the people on on Matt Friend within the team had, had tried really hard to win the race for Spain, you know, a number of times. A lot of them being involved with Telefonica campaign, who people recall came pretty close to winning, um, you know, probably similar to how we ended up going. So, yeah, pretty gutted for all the people there. Um, and just, yeah, it's always going to be tough if it comes down to, you know, so close. I think if you knew, you know, two or three legs before that you you weren't going to win, then that would be obviously a lot. You'd have more time to sort of let those emotions play out. But it obviously came crashing down for us pretty fast, being that we had about, you know, 20 minutes before the finish to sort of try and soak it all in. I just want to talk to you, I guess, what the impact has had on you as both people and sailors and simply i guess just firstly what what impact did it have on you as a person this race well as a person i think you you learn a lot about yourself you learn um how you react um in different situations obviously a lot of the situations you end up in the race are, are quite foreign to what we'd experienced before um you also see how how different people in your team um you know react in those situations and um, from that, you understand what how you can have a positive Im- impact on them too. So, you know, I think I learned a lot around that. Um, obviously, the sailing skills side of things, you, you learn a heck of a lot because you're sailing for 24 hours a day and there's always ways to make the boat go fast, faster and that sort of thing. So, yeah, between those two things and then I think, you know, um, as well, undoubtedly you learn from having such a um, – you know, a narrow loss at the end as well, because you learn how how you reacted, and um, I think you you get tougher for it for sure. What about you, P? What is it? What impact has it had you as a sailor? Well, I think it definitely makes you more well-rounded. Um, you know, it's something that you know, not many people have probably done as I suppose as. Um, as diverse a amount of sailing as, as what Blair and myself have now. And that's something that it's always very hard to put, you know, exact things that, you know, that change that. And now I sail like that because of that, but no, definitely um, I think the more situations you see and the more situations you have to deal with and can, you know, deal with well, the, the better you, you get at, you know, making um, good decisions. And no, that's something that you know, I really feel like it's um you know been an incredible experience and you know i'm sure it you know, will have helped my sailing in in some way and you know any any form of sailing you do whether it's uh, america's cup or olympic but it's always very hard to put in an exact um an exact thing that you know you, you get out of it if, if that makes any sense Hey, for sure. So I guess one thing that's, that potentially has come out of it is the birth of the Live Ocean charity, which you two have set up. Um, was that principally, Blair, out of your experiences for the through the Volvo Ocean Race, or was it something that you'd been working on for some time? Yeah, I, I think, you know, before the Volvo Ocean Race, we already had this immense sort of passion for the ocean, um, you know, spending so much time in the ocean, sailing as it as a profession and then 
even before we did that, I think we both had um, this, you know, connection with the ocean through um, the upbringings that we were very fortunate to have. So that was already there, and I think the Volvo definitely um, sort of sped things up, accelerated it, and um, we came back from that and wanted to do more um, for the ocean to have a more of a positive impact. We didn't, necess- or we weren't necessarily happy with the direction it was heading, and that sort of led not you know straight away to setting up a charity that was quite far down the track, but it led us to start doing a lot of research and talking to people within the non-for-profit sector and really understanding of, of where we could be best used to have that impact. And that's where um, Live Ocean was eventually sort of formed. So what, what's the main thing you're looking to achieve, uh, Pete, at the moment with the charity? Well, I think the, the main thing we're wanting to achieve is for New Zealanders to be world leading in ocean health and you know, also to amplify and accelerate you know, positive ocean action. Um, you know, being that you know, right now, you know, we're incredibly proud to represent New Zealand, and you know, as sailors, we try and you know, represent New Zealand to the highest standard on the global stage, and you know, we don't. Well, definitely, right now, our, our oceans aren't the the example to the world of you know how you should treat them, and you know, that's something that we feel very strongly that if we can't lead this issue. In New Zealand, then you know who will. You know we've got such a big ocean. You know being the the fourth largest in the world, and yeah, you know, massive spread from from north to south. Um, in terms of you know different climates and different temperatures, and you know we're also so isolated from you know dense dense populations around the world. So yeah, you know, we have a really uh, I suppose a lot of our oceans have been you know relatively untouched, and you know as a, a country we feel like we have a a really good chance to to lead this issue to the world. I think during the race, um, you even mentioned that uh, you'd like to to do it again, and and talked about potentially doing it with Pete as well. Is that something that's still on the cards? Yeah, I think you know, finishing the race, we both felt like we had um, unfinished business, and um, you know, we both felt like we'd learned a lot from our. Um, respective teams that we've done it with and you know we're very I think glad for taking those opportunities and, and doing it with the two different teams um, but at the same time with the unfinished business and sort of I think we had a desire to you know get back on the same boat and, and try and give it another crack to to win it so you know we'll just have to wait and see how things play out especially in this current climate we got to see how the race looks and um you know, and that sort of thing, and see how our other commitments. Obviously, we've got the America's Cup and the Olympics um, right in front of us, so we got to, you know, concentrate on those those first. But yeah, the ocean race will always have a uh, a special place in our heart, I think. And you know, with that goal of trying to win it there, we'll just um, you know wait and see when we can um, give it a good crack. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That's been a really fascinating insight into what was uh, an epic race. Uh, so appreciate your time. But uh, just before you go, uh, we're going to introduce a segment uh, in the Broadreach Radio called Worst Wipeout Ever. And uh, I'm guessing that you guys have uh, some pretty bad ones up your sleeve. Blair, can you tell us uh, one that springs to mind for you? Yeah, it's certainly been some beauties over the years, um, probably across all the classes of boats, uh, and definitely some good ones in the Volvo, which we've just been talking about. Um, 
but I don't think you can go too much past the uh, pitch pole in Bermuda, um, especially for a sort of, you know, just what it entailed and the situation it left us in, um, you know. And But if you're looking at it purely from a wipeout too, I don't think you could do it much more um, perfectly than we did it or much more wrong, really. Um, it was a pretty much a straight, um, you know, stern straight over the bows pretty symmetrical so yeah pretty big blunder on our behalf to to um, get into that situation but uh you know luckily we're all good and and crew was okay and the boat wasn't too badly damaged that we could uh you know the shore crew could fix and we could get back into it and carry on the uh, louis vuitton series and then go on to win the america's cup yeah it certainly gave us a few heart palpitations back here but uh (laughs) It was good to see you guys get back on board and, and, and obviously bring the cup home. Um, so, uh, you know, again, thanks for your time. Uh, it's been a great way to kick off uh, the podcast and uh, hopefully we'll have you go on again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Well, there you have it. There's the first episode of Broadreach Radio. Hope you've enjoyed and we look forward to bringing you another one next Friday.